Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Prisoners at the Florence ICE Detention Center went on hunger strike this week in response to grim medical conditions. Puente, Arizona, requests supporters call ICE Director Enrique Lucero to voice support for the prisoners' demands for medical attention. He can be reached at 602-766-7030. And now, we have a phone call from James Phillips at the Pendleton Correctional Facility on COVID-19. Prisoners in the facility protested last month in response to lack of medical care in preparation for the pandemic. The unrest was put down harshly and labeled a disturbance by prison authorities. My name is James Phillips. I'm incarcerated at Pendleton Correctional Facility. I'm here to uh, speak about the COVID-19 situation here at this facility. Um, We've been having a lot of uh, outbreak cases of the COVID-19 within our facility. Um, We don't know exactly how many cases uh, there are, you know, but we know that there's been uh, incidents that uh that the have been found to be uh they they have been tested positive for it or they've been suspected of uh being positive for COVID nineteen so they started quarantining us in the in the gym or other inmates in the gym or whatever. And when they and when they started doing that, they started actually trying to mix in infected people with people who wasn't who wasn't infected, and that caused a riot, and a uh, few people got hurt between that. So what they did was they start now they started uh start quarantining um, the positive uh, inmates back there in the, in the back of the in E building in, in, in E building, which is an I complex of uh, Pendleton uh, Correctional Facility, and they've been keeping the those that, 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 that have uh, tested positive for COVID-19 back there um, in those two buildings. Um, we've had, uh, I want to say, one, two, three, four. We've had five deaths from COVID-19 uh, uh, that I know of in this, in, in this facility. At least three of my friends have died. Um, um, right now, I'm, I'm currently being housed in G-Cell House, which is a lockup unit, and um, it's inside of this building. Both of our counselors have uh, contracted COVID-19, and they're both on leave. There are three range and four range on the second side of G-Cell House. It's quarantine. They haven't been doing, they haven't been testing this upon the test like we've been uh, requesting. Uh, basically, we've been getting letters to no, to, to no uh, medicine pitching periods, including whether it's emergency, whether it's uh, ongoing, whether it's new, whether it's period. Let me see what else is going on here. We're testing our mask or whatever. The last time we got a mask, 
was, uh, I want to say, last month, and then the person who gave us the medicines was COVID-19 positive, which was our counselor, which is counselor Faust and counselor uh, Shepard. But basically, um, you're handling this whole situation and uh, just being negligent all the way across the board. But yeah, that's, that's what's going on, to the best of my knowledge. My name is James Phillips. I'm a offender at uh, Penalty Correctional Facility. And uh, this is my testimony. Thanks. We're still receiving and airing calls via our coronavirus hotline number, where people on the inside can call in to record a statement about the impact of COVID-19 on their facility. Family members on the outside are also encouraged to call in and leave a message. That number is 765-343-6236. We encourage folks to keep calling in with updates and we'll keep airing them. Welcome to the 200th episode of KiteLine. This week, we revisit the important intersection of incarceration and higher education. Barriers to higher education are a key way prisoners and ex-prisoners are trapped by the system in a cycle of unemployment, low-wage work, and recidivism. We are proud again to host an interview conducted by Anastasia Schmid, who visited Michelle Jones at home. You may remember Michelle from previous episodes of KiteLine, both from inside and outside of the Indiana Women's Prison. In the installment this week, Michelle tells Anastasia about the difficulties in applying for college while incarcerated. She also shares shocking stories of being accepted to multiple institutions who then revoked her admission because of her criminal record. Here they are. My experiences while incarcerated trying to apply for grad school were pretty difficult. First of all, I needed outside people to do research on the schools um, in terms of what programs, what requirements, what eligibility. Then I needed to know what were the barriers for applying with a criminal conviction. <sighs> and then there were the issues with um, actually filling out the application itself. Like all of those applications were online. And you don't have access to that while incarcerated, do you? Absolutely not. Um, no internet access. So I literally could not have applied to grad school, which you know you do it the year before. So if you're planning your reentry and going to school is a part of that, you have to think a year in advance, which means you're doing it while incarcerated, overwhelmingly. How is it that you were even able to research schools? I actually asked my faculty to help me. And that was a job of one person. And then another person had the job of, um, you know, figuring out how to do these applications. Because here's the issue. When you create an online account at a university to apply, you are agreeing when you click and you accept the conditions that you are you applying for this job, applying for this, uh, this opportunity. Well, people had to be me, create an email account, and be me illegally in order for me to apply for colleges. In order to make sure that we all didn't go down in a blaze of glory, <laughs> one of the things in which we did do, we um, contacted each university, then disclose my status, then say, hey, we're trying to apply. She gets out in a year. How can you help us do this? And we actually had to find human beings who are at the universities who were willing to put in my application for me 
And, and we got the applications by someone literally taking screenshots of the screen mm-hmm. and then fill, and me filling them out. And then we sent them to this person. But even then, I had to sign a little notification of consent that this human being at this university is approved and has the right to input my information. Did you hit any resistance from the universities themselves not wanting to give you even access to the application because you were an incarcerated person? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, some universities would send the application, and then once we sent in the filled-out application, they simply didn't put them online. Part of the experiment for us was to see who would give give me the opportunity, period. And so I applied to more schools than the average student would. I applied to nine schools. Nine schools, wow. In order to find out who would let me have, you know, get to the point of access, get so, to the opportunity. So about how many out of those nine schools actually took your application to the online point? So I, I, I'm going to correct myself. I applied to more than nine schools because there were a few that didn't even put my applications on file. Okay. So, you know, University Baltimore and uh, Yale, no consideration at all. Hmm. Um, but there were nine that got in that okay. were actually went through the process. Well, it's sort of promising because it sounds like more let you through that first barrier than not. Would that be a correct assessment? Yeah. and But then the next processes of discrimination or exclusion kick in okay so after you're on the list then uh, and you are you submitted this paperwork which honestly was a challenge in and of itself because you are trying to write a personal statement and a career statement from the position of being incarcerated at the time and moving through your past and all of that and your crime of conviction and all of that to disclose enough about yourself so that they understand who you are in order to um, recognize that you deserve this opportunity. And so you have to do that and also this career statement, which is forward-looking, mm-hmm. when you haven't really seen much of the world if you've been incarcerated significantly for a significant amount of time. So it's, it's a weird juxtaposition mm-hmm. of like trying to talk about who you are now, but but don't lock it down to the person you are now because you because you happen to be incarcerated. And then be forward-looking enough that um, they could see that you and your scholarship have some place to go. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was a, it was an interesting process. So you have these... I had all these schools, and it literally took a faculty member, Dr. Kaufman, and myself three weeks every day mm. just trying... To get through the application process from this one, from that one, from this one, from that one, because they all had different requirements. Some people wanted, even after you had disclosed that you're formally incarcerated, they wanted additional information. They wanted you to give you a give. Um, some schools asked for a narration of your actual crime of conviction, and so we had to figure out how how to shape that narrative to tell that narrative and then and put it into the system a lot of back and forth each career statement had to engage the scholars at that school so a lot of researching of not just what you want to do but who's at that school mm-hmm. that you're interested in working with and it simply could not have been done without a mediator without someone in between because i simply didn't have access to the information and the application process 
is arduous for anybody, but particularly for people who are lacking access to the internet resources. And for those of people who don't have their CVs typed or their person, you know, they don't have access to computers or printers. I mean, it, 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 it would, it would be, it would seem almost impossible. So it's almost a requirement of a full-time position for that mediator, for the outside person to stand in between and make sure you not only have access to what you need, um, but potentially access to even the baseline of a computer to type all this information out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then all the follow-up, because there was a lot of phone call conversations that the mediator, Dr. Kaufman, had to have with the universities to get these extra permissions for another person to input our applications and then follow up when maybe there was something else that was needed or they couldn't fill out, they could, the person inputting could check a box appropriately. It, re- it required a lot of work. Universities are aware of how in getting rid of the paper applications, they create barriers for students. And, and, and let's not even begin to talk about application fees. Oh, yeah, please. Honestly, if it hadn't been for the mediator constantly reporting the fact that I made 20 cents an hour and asking and begging for a waiver for the application fees, I would not have been able to apply to nine schools. Mm-hmm. It simply would have been financially impossible. Mm-hmm. But because it wasn't me begging and asking for an application fee waiver, I think it was it, it worked a little bit in my favor because they always have this connotation that incarcerated people are looking out to manipulate, to get over, to pull one over one's eye, right? But if the if you had a, a mediator speaking on your behalf, this person is vouching for you and able to make an argument for you, and it actually helped so that I didn't have to pay out of all those schools one application fee myself, right? But it would require also to talk to Dr. Kaufman about all the barriers that are behind that, behind the scenes that I myself never saw because she was doing the on the ground mediation. Mm -hmm. So uh, our mediator then is important, not solely for access to resources you don't have otherwise, but really as a character credibility reference as well. They are vouching for you. You know, she's Dr. Kelsey Kaufman, graduate of Harvard and Yale, making these overtures Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to people that she's met at conferences and other events, right? As opposed to me, the criminalized being in prison, writing them cold, saying, hey, I would like this opportunity. Here's a little bit about me. Here's some things on paper that are handwritten. And I would like for you to give me an opportunity. So really, without the inclusionary status of the third party, this would be an impossibility. It would be a great impossibility. And that's what we need universities to think about, right? Because they are limiting access to people who are thirsting and reaching for these opportunities. I always say that if someone's willing to go through the work of an associate's degree, the work of getting a bachelor's degree, and then maybe an advanced degree and in, 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 in beyond that, and then have the balls to say, I want to go after a doctorate program. If that alone doesn't show that they have the follow through, right? For anybody, for mm-hmm. anyone, mm-hmm. right? Then what would, right? And so when you ascribe criminality on top of that, you're saying that I haven't demonstrated enough for this opportunity. I have demonstrated enough for this opportunity. So when universities use these um, 
And I, and I want to kind of get back to the other levels of discrimination that go beyond just the barriers of applying. When they add those on, they are, <laughs> they are saying that we do not care about the effort that you put in to get these advanced degrees. They don't weigh the same. They don't mean the same. Yet they would for anybody else, right? Mm-hmm. So I applied to these schools and, you know, you cross your fingers and you pray and you wait. And three months later, you get some letters back. Well, you know, I get a letter back from the University of California. They're like, yay, we like everything about you. We want to give you this package and this fellowship for this or that amount of years for this amount. And let us know by this date if you want it. So it's like, wow, okay, great. We have a one university that's really into us and into me and ready to go. And then another comes. And then another comes and another comes. And then suddenly you're bowled over by the fact that you've got opportunity. Okay. So I I have options I didn't think I'd have. So now I'm weighing options. But in the middle of that, suddenly the first university that was like, man, we're down. We want you. We want this opportunity with you. We want to work with you. They come back and say, we need to do a background check. You do. Which almost seems ludicrous because obviously there was a middle party that had to do all this for you. So they clearly knew right from Jump Street that you were incarcerated. Uh, University of Kansas, I had met the professor of the department that I was going into via video conferencing from the Indiana Women's Prison (laughs) at the American Historic Association Conference. So he's looking at me inside the, the facility. There is no greater disclosure than giving a paper from prison. (laughs) Right, right. So he knew, the department knew, and so I applied and disclosed. My disclosure statement states it, and they come back with this perfunctory request for a (laughs) background check, and they send me an official form asking me to sign off to give permission for it. And the the professor's great heart, wonderful person, he says, uh, you know, I think this is just... A routine. No worries. The, the GSAS, the department that runs that, you know, that his particular department or is over their particular department, does a pause and says, oh, we don't want this particular person with this criminal background history to be in here. So why don't we throw them? This is a new black box process because if a school application doesn't have check the box that you're formerly incarcerated, this is another way in which to discriminate, particularly mm. once you self-disclose. Mm. So I disclose. They come back, we need to do a background check, and it's just very routine. And they do the background check, and they come back with a very official letter that says, we are sorry that we even offered you what an opportunity because of your criminal history background. We're retracting our offer. So this is something that really could have happened right from the very beginning rather than put a human being through the long, arduous process, especially entailing a third party, to go through all these steps to get through the application and the disclosure, the personal statement, the career statement, fees that somebody might have paid, only to decline you on something that they knew right from the start. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that they were going to discriminate against, right? Um, so how many schools did that end up happening with? Was it just University, it University of Kansas, Kansas or was it the several? University of Michigan did the same thing. They were prepping to do the same thing, let me be clear. So they 
gave me this wonderful package, beautiful, many, many thousands of dollars. I think it was worth over $105,000. And they were very, you know, very excited to bring me on board and all of that. And they suddenly out of nowhere asked for a routine background check. And out of nowhere, after I'd had this offer for many months. Okay. So instead of going through what I sensed was going to happen again with um, Kansas, what had happened Kansas, I went ahead and I wrote them and said, thank you for your offer, but I'm going to withdraw uh, my application at this time. I, and I pulled out because I knew that this was another black box process. And so what was left out of the other universities that didn't, out, out of the five, was left with three others, Right. But I would be remiss if I didn't say that there was, you know, the other, the, the two schools at Harvard that were interested in having me had sent their letters to their DSAS and said, send her an offer. We want her. Right. Well, the GSAS and their lawyers did, uh, did some investigation because I, again, self-disclosed everything that they wanted to know, gave them that. And they decided that they would not send an offer that both departments requested that they do, the School of History and School of American Studies. So technically, there's seven schools that were interested in me, right? But discrimination and exclusionary practices happened at two schools at Harvard, then cultural studies at Michigan, then American Studies at Kansas. So you got these four. And so I'm left with three other schools who... I think on the strength of the administrators of the department, they were able to buck the uh, the GSAS above them. Um, they had a standing as scholars to fight against that. Um, and, and, and maybe that would have been true at, at Harvard, but I don't know. I don't know because both of those scholars are huge there over those individual departments. I mean, I think the irony I hear, too, are the particular schools that you're applying to. On the surface level, just on the titles of those departments and what those departments supposedly stand for, those should have been the very places to accept you with open arms. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so ultimately, I was down to University of California, Riverside, University um, Berkeley, and the... Um, FM class, uh, department and NYU. I will say this about NYU. They didn't allow those black box processes to proceed in my, in my situation. I had an amazing DGS who fought for me the whole time and uh, made sure I had a package comparable to the other fat other students, um, made sure I had guaranteed housing. I mean, they went to the next level. And so is that what ended up being your final deciding factor on the choice of school you would yeah. finally accept? The, the school that not only had my back, because Berkeley and UC, were, um, UC Riverside were really great, amazing people there, but um, also had the, the backing of the department to offer me safe housing, mm. to offer, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, because that was, that was critical for me. I'm coming from Indiana. I don't mm -hmm. know New York mm -hmm. at all. I needed to feel safe. Mm -hmm. And that sounds contrary to what the so-called criminal is. The criminal is supposed to be whatever in whatever environment. But me, I needed to feel safe. Yeah, please talk for one moment about the vulnerabilities of yeah. the incarcerated now re-entering the world and uh, your safety and security concerns. Absolutely. I mean, 
Number one, we were required to have a roommate for graduate housing. Everybody does. And we learn who the roommates are a few months in advance. So I'm still incarcerated when I learn who my roommate is. Mm. And I thought, why don't I reach out to my department and say, hey, can you connect me to the roommate so that I can, can begin to foster a relationship or connection with this person prior to my release, prior to coming there, so that they kind of know a little bit about me, I know a little bit about them. So again, so that I feel safe walking into this new environment. And I alleviate any concerns that someone might have about staying in the house with someone who has a criminal conviction. So I proceed to do this and I reach out. The woman is immediately offended and frightened or whatever. And she gets a hold of the provost and says and demands that I not be allowed to live with her. I, I don't know what particular language was used, um, but it was very disparaging from what I hear, from what I gather. So the response, instead of criminalizing me and putting me in a, a bad situation, the university's response was to give me my own apartment for a year. And, but I'm saying that's the kind of consciousness that mm-hmm. I, w- I appreciated about the university. Because they could have, I don't know what they could have done, but they could not, ha- they didn't have necessarily have to have that response. Mm-hmm. They could have forced us to, they could have swapped at me and put me with some other person who and the rumor mill and I would not and I would have been trying to re-enter also in an already chaotic under situation. So um that was rare. And then again, at the end of the day, I was worried about feeling safe in the place where I laid my head. Mm-hmm. And that's why the other universities were less less the choice, because housing was precarious and not guaranteed and not understood and not and in one in one situation not affordable Mm -hmm. so it's like how does someone get ready to live this new life if they're not safe in the place where they lay their heads it was a critical thing for me Mm -hmm. which made NYU above and beyond who the faculty were the choice Mm -hmm. because I had to be safe and and I will say this and why you also put me in contact with fifth year, sixth year, third year graduate students in my department. And they were emailing me back and forth, talking to me about the place where I was going to live, talking to me about the department, the faculty. There was a team of people who were helping me feel safe about this choice. And I'll never uh, forget that because that was that was key. Mm-hmm. It was key. Well, I think it's important, too, and, and this is part of what uh, I'm gleaning listening to you talk, and that I think people need to understand is a choice in grad school for anybody, but particularly a person in your circumstances, that there really is a need to look at this as a reciprocal exchange, not just solely, uh, well, because you're in the situation you are, you should be forced to just take whatever's going to be thrown at you, that there are things that you yourself need to take into consideration before making the choice in the leap. Absolutely. But a lot of people don't consider that. You know, take this corner, take this crust of bread, take this little piece, and you go off into the sunset and exist. Someone who is willing to acknowledge your personhood, that you have concerns, that you have values, that you have limits, that you are a person as opposed to a thingified criminal makes all the difference in the world about how uh, about someone's success or failure coming home, period. Makes all the difference in the world. 
And kudos to NYU for being those people. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a good relationship. It's been a good opportunity. And has it been without challenges? Absolutely not. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> I, I would say challenges are inherent in trying to do a doctoral program. <laughs> <laughs> I think you ask, you ask for a life of a bit of challenge. But the people have been great. And I think that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. I, think, I, I think we can go through hell with the right people. Amen. These interviews on barriers to higher education were made possible with support from the Lumina Foundation. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.